Would you turn with me to the book of Romans? Romans 12 is where we'll be at. And if you've been with us for very long, uh, we just finished up about a month ago uh, in the book of Acts. Romans is just one book to the right of that. So we'll be in Romans 12, 9 through 13 this morning. I'll be reading from the ESV if you want to change that on your phones or your devices to follow along more clearly. Now, as you look at these verses, if they sound familiar, they, they should because they've gone out with uh, many emails from the elders over the past few months. Um, all the signs as you enter into our building and you enter into this area all have this verse on them. So I thought it'd be good for us uh, as a family of believers to go through these verses just a little closer and take a little bit of a closer look at them this morning. But before we dive in, would you, uh, would you pray with me uh, that God would give us open ears and, and soft hearts this morning to receive his truth together? Father, we are um, we're thankful this morning uh, for these words of truth, grace, and wisdom, and love that are given to us in this book. I pray that we would be encouraged and convicted by them this morning, that you would do a sanctifying work in us today by the power of your Holy Spirit. Father, I pray now that you would guard my mouth from inconsistencies in your truth and that we would leave here this morning with greater love and greater affection for you and for Christ as our Savior and for one another. And it's in Christ's name we pray and all God's people said, amen. Since we are, uh, since we're jumping in towards the end of Romans, I just want to quickly summarize the book for us. Romans is uh, is probably one of the most complete and clear depictions of the gospel in all of Scripture. And when we say the gospel here, what we mean is God's creation of life, all of humanity, everything that we see outside, the sky, the birds of the air, the trees. Uh, we mean um, we mean the fall of man. We mean our rebellion. Uh, our sinfulness. We mean Christ's life and death and resurrection as the revelation of God's righteousness to pay for that rebellion. And then we mean that uh, the redeemed lives that we're now called to live as we await that final restoration to come. That's what we mean when we, when we say the gospel here. So we see all of this in the book of Romans. We see God's righteousness given through his plan of redemption in Christ to his people. And righteousness just means to have right standing with God. So Romans assures us of our right standing with God and then it shows us how redeemed people are to live. It asks and answers the questions that since I have right standing with my creator, how does that change how I go about living my everyday life? How does it change my relationships with, uh, with those that have also been redeemed? How does it change my relationships with those who haven't? These are questions this morning uh, that as we look at this passage together, uh, we'll find answers. These are things uh, that we need to be thinking about as we look around and we find ourselves in times of such disunity. And I don't just mean outside these four walls, I mean within the church. We need to look inward. We need to be examining our own hearts in these things. Disunity within the church is not a new thing. There was so much disunity within the church in Rome as Paul penned this letter. You had, a, you had a chosen people who believed that righteousness came only through perfectly obeying the law, being intermixed with a chosen people, being grafted in and made righteous through faith in Christ alone, who had that external law now written on their regenerated hearts just like you and me and every other believer who has been redeemed by the blood of Christ. 
So as you can imagine, frameworks were being shaken. Beliefs that were known for lifetimes were being tested. And there were obvious arguments on how a life being lived for God was to be outworked. So Paul in today's passage speaks into this. So if you're not already there, would you join me in Romans 12, 9 through 13? Follow along with me as I read. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. As you look at those verses, I wonder what's, what's going through your mind. Even as you look at them now, if you think about what is happening in your mind, do you find yourself making a mental checklist of the ones that you think you do well in or the ones that you think that you just need to work better in? Do you maybe think of a, uh, of a specific person for some of them? I know that I did. I, I, thought of, uh, I thought of the Crumlicks as I thought of hospitality. I thought of the Watsons. I thought of uh, Petruses as I thought about being fervent in spirit. Did you think, I'm pretty hospitable? Or, man, I really got to try harder at being patient in tribulation. I ask because I think if we look at these things as a list of rules and tasks that we must force ourselves to simply perform and just check the box in, that we drastically miss Paul's encouragement here. Paul isn't going after conformed actions, but rather transformed hearts and minds. He's going after the inward motivation for these acts of obedience, which for us believers is the gospel of Christ. There are 13 encouragements that we just read together in this text. 13 exhortations from Paul through the Holy Spirit on how we are to represent Christ as his chosen followers. These are the desires, the motivations, and the actions of an authentic believer because these are the desires and the motivations and the actions of Christ. And we won't do these perfectly, church, so don't hear me saying that this morning, but as followers of Christ, there must at least first be a desire and second, a consistent practice of these things, especially in the days that we are experiencing right now. And so I just want to take a look at them. I want them to be encouragements for us this morning, to let them convict and hopefully realign some of the motives of our hearts. So I'm going to put these uh, 13 exhortations into six categories for us this morning. Uh, six things that mark an authentic believer whose heart has been gripped by the goodness of the gospel and its power has taken root in their lives. So if you're taking notes, here's the six things we'll be looking at. First, authentic believers love genuinely. They love genuinely. Authentic believers cling to the truth of scripture. Authentic believers esteem one another. Authentic believers serve passionately. Authentic believers worship steadily. And six, authentic believers give generously. So authentic believers love genuinely. They cling to the truth of scripture. They esteem one another. They serve passionately. They worship steadily. And they give generously. Look with me again at verse 9. Paul says, let love be genuine. 
It's no accident that Paul starts off all the other exhortations with love because it's love that encompasses all of them. It's love that binds them together. It is interesting, though, that he specifically says to let love be genuine. And we should ask why. I mean, why is verse 9 even here? He talks about love twice in these four verses. Why doesn't he just let verse 10 be enough? Love one another with brotherly affection. Let that be the end. Boom, right into the rest of the passage. Got it, Paul. I'll love my brother. I'll, I'll let love be genuine is what Paul is going after. Some of you know that um, before I went into full-time ministry, I was a, uh, I was a mechanic uh, for way too long. There's no good amount of time to be a mechanic. And in the auto industry, there's a few different types of parts. There's, there's genuine automotive parts and there's aftermarket automotive parts. Now, when you buy genuine automotive parts, you're, you're getting the real deal. That part has been made to the same standard of care and quality of the day that that vehicle left the showroom floor. But with aftermarket parts, you're getting something that looks and feels like the original. It even has all the same functions, but many times it's made much cheaper with less quality and therefore it breaks down much quicker over time. Paul is so serious about the call to genuine love because there's a type of love that is often shown that is not genuine. It's aftermarket love. This type of love when boiled down is self-interested and selfishly motivated. It has all the outward appearances of genuine love, but is only often shown out of a fear of man or what others may think or trying to impress others or manipulate them and is therefore not genuine love at all. And I know this because like you, I fight that type of love in my own heart. Paul's encouraging the church to let their love be real with one another, to apply it to their circumstances, to reestablish the genuine love of God within their own heart by reestablishing the truth of the gospel that he's just laid out in the previous 11 chapters of this letter. Look to the cross of Christ, church, which is the epitome of genuine love. Let love be genuine literally means without hypocrisy. This means we don't just act these things out begrudgingly as believers. We don't just go about trying to uh, create a culture of niceness. Hello, Ashland, town of nice people. Sound familiar? Rather, genuine love must come from a rootedness in the love of the gospel of Christ. It's what gives weight to all these other exhortations that follow this. Genuine love must come from a renewed heart that is transforming a renewed mind. That's what Paul says in the first chapter, first part of this chapter. If you look at me with me at verse one, Romans 12, look down with me. He says, I appeal to you therefore brothers by the mercies of God, meaning I ask these things of you with the mercy that God has shown us sinners to be first in your mind. He says, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Verse two, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind that by testing, you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Take note of the wording here. Paul says, do not be conformed to this world or do not go on acting as this world acts, allowing their frameworks or their belief systems to take you over, but rather be transformed by the renewal of your mind. 
There's a stark contrast between being conformed and being transformed. To be conformed in this sense means to be changed from the outside in, to be, to be so fixated and engulfed in everything around us that we allow what's going on the, in the world to dictate our desires and our actions and our responses. But to be transformed is to be changed from the inside out, to be fixated on the work that God has done in us, constantly reminding ourselves of his mercy and his genuine love and letting everything that we do flow from it. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. It is this work of Christ that Paul calls all authentic believers to be fixated on because it's this work alone that has the power to transform us. So Paul is calling us as authentic believers to be focused on the gospel together, to be fixated on the genuine love and mercy that God has shown to us because only then are we set free to show the genuineness of this gospel transforming work to others. So we have this at the forefront of our minds this morning while we look at this, these other exhortations. So authentic believers love genuinely and authentic believers cling to the truth of scripture. Second half of verse nine, look with me if you would. Paul says, abhor what is evil and hold fast to what is good. And what this is a call to is an understanding of the truths of scripture because in scripture we find answers to all that is evil and all that is good. And if we're not finding it within this book, then I promise you that we are finding it somewhere else. So who or what is defining what you call good and what you call evil, church? Because that is what is defining the truth that you cling to. Is it CNN? Is it Fox News? Did some of you cringe more or less when I said one or the other of those? Is it social media? Are you getting your truth from Facebook, church? Is it your circumstances or your constitutional rights? Or is it the very words that God has given to us in this book? Because let me just say that God's word stood eternally before the US Constitution, and it'll stand eternally if and when the US Constitution no longer does. I don't say that because I'm ungrateful for it. I'm, I'm grateful for our Constitution, but my hope is not in it. We've got to put our hope in the word of God. So how does it tell us we discern what is good and acceptable and perfect and what is evil? Through the transformation of our minds that we just read about and through testing as we present ourselves to God as a living sacrifice, meaning an active sacrifice. It's why Paul calls us to a humble, sober-minded, self-sacrificing service. It's through testing, through gathering with and serving one another with the gifts God has given to each of us, praying together, hearing from his word together consistently that we grow in our understanding of what is good and what is evil. And as we grow in these truths, we don't just keep them locked away as useless knowledge, but we're called to do something with them. And so we must actively hate what is truly evil and we must actively hold fast to what is truly good. Colossians 3.5, Paul says to the church, if then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. 
Set your minds on the things that are above, not on the things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. So Paul is saying, this is your new state. This is who you are now, believer. And because the righteousness of God has been established in your heart, he goes on in verse 5 to say this, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these two, you once walked when you were living in them. But now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. We're transformed in the renewing of our minds and the renewal of knowledge that lines up with everything God says in this book. And we abhor or we hate all that it calls evil and we hold fast to all that it says is good. And listen to me, especially that which exists in our own hearts. We should be horrified by all that this book says is evil and sinful. And we should be delighted, awestruck, Love and hold fast to all that this book says is good. Amen? So authentic believers love genuinely. They cling to the truths of scripture. Third, authentic believers esteem one another. Look with me at verse 10. Paul says, love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Has your life been marked by brotherly love as of late? Have you gone about your day in an attempt to outdo showing honor to one another? Or have your thoughts been filled with resentment and patience and slander? I, uh, I didn't grow up with a brother, but I do have a sister and uh, she is so lucky to have me um, because I was, I was so easy to get along with as a kid and we didn't have arguments or disagreements, we, we just, Everything worked out perfectly with us. You guys can't see it. My mom's in the back here laughing super hard. It was actually quite the opposite. Um, we, we, uh, we were typical brother and sister. But it's brotherly affection and love that goes beyond those things. And, and I get it. I get it. Some people are hard to love and show brotherly affection to, aren't they? Being real honest here this morning. But authentic believers remind themselves that we're hard to love too. Authentic believers say, God, I know that my sinfulness was so much more unattractive and unlovely to you than what this person is to me right now, and yet you have showed me love in Christ. I can surely show them love. This type of love is devoted to one another. It's not afraid to confront from a place of grace and love because it cares deeply about the heart of the other. It's a love that even when faced with radical disagreements is able to say, that's still my brother or that's still my sister. I'm going to give them the benefit of a doubt because true brotherly affection is committed. It's steadfast. It's rooted in the family of God. Jesus had, uh, had really strong words about brotherly affections and those who were considered to be a part of the family of God. He put those bought by his blood and doing the will of his father above his own earthly family. 
He makes this point clear in Matthew 12. It says, while Jesus was still speaking to the people, behold, his mother and his brothers stood outside asking to speak to him. But he replied to the man who told him, who is my mother and who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand towards his disciples, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. Christ is not denying here that he has earthly family, but rather saying that the bonds of the blood-bought family of God go even deeper than your earthly families. I wonder, do you see other Christ followers as your family? Do you count them as your brothers and your sisters and your fathers and your mothers? Do you treat them with the same grace and love that Christ calls for? Paul goes on in the second half of verse 10 to say, outdo one another in showing honor. He doesn't say we should just show honor, but that we should outdo one another in showing honor. To go above and beyond, to be over the top and showing each other's value and worth as Christ followers. Showing honor means to hold someone to high respect or great esteem. And I think we have a really hard time as Americans understanding honor because it's not something that's really ingrained in our society. We tend to deal more in the guilt and shame and reward areas where you treat people based on their accomplishments or lack thereof and not their intrinsic worth or value as image bearers of God. We tend to operate in the realm of, I'll see you as valuable when you show me your worth. But this type of honor says, I'll view you as valuable because you have been made in the image of a worthy God. We're to honor and hold all humanity as valuable since being made in the image of their creator. But Paul is speaking specifically here to believers. And therefore, not only is it a call to see the image of God in others, but for those who have been specifically redeemed by God that we see one another with the blood-bought purchase of Christ in view. Authentic believers esteem one another as we esteem Christ. So authentic believers love genuinely, they cling to the truth of scripture, they esteem one another, and fourthly, authentic believers serve passionately. Verse 11 says, do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. In other words, do not let your passion in the work of faith be diminished, brothers and sisters. Authentic believers keep going. It can be really easy, um, it can be really easy to take a look around us at everything that's going on in the world and become discouraged, can it? It can be really easy to take the look uh, at the lives of other professing believers and ourselves and become discouraged. And I think that Paul would encourage us to not give up. He would say, do not lose sight, brothers and sisters, of the work that God has done in you. Do not lose sight of the cross of Christ and press on and let it be an encouragement as you serve the Lord with all joy and gladness. The word serve is interesting in that it always requires a recipient. In this case, the recipient is the Lord. And how do we serve the Lord? But by serving one another, by serving our brothers and sisters in Christ. That's what Paul has just come out of saying in verses 4 through 8 in Romans 12. He gives us an extensive list of giftings that God has graced each one of us with, not to keep to ourselves, but to joyfully serve one another with. 
It's one of the ways we show our genuinely, genuine and brotherly love for one another. This goes against the idea and, uh, and the more trending claim of many so-called believers today, which is, I love God, but I hate the church. Usually it's much more subtle than that. It usually sounds like, um, I'm, I'm good with God. God and I are good, uh, but, but the church, just, it's just not for me. So hear me when I say this. You cannot serve the Lord without serving one another. They go hand in hand. They must go together. You cannot say you love God and hate your brother. 1 John 4, 20 through 21 says, If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. Authentic believers love and serve one another passionately because they know the love of God and how he willingly and passionately served them in the humble sacrifice of Christ. Please don't think that I'm talking about serving just during this one and a half hours on a Sunday morning. That's part of it, but our serving carries out those doors when we leave. As we invite one another into our homes for meals during the week, as we use our gifts and our abilities to help each other, do not grow weary in these things, church. Do not be lazy in your passion for Christ and his church. Galatians 6, Paul says, let us not grow weary of doing good for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So then as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone and especially those to the household of faith. Let it be known and said of us that we have spirits of willing service for one another. Serve passionately, church. So authentic believers love genuinely. They cling to the truth of scripture. They esteem one another. They serve passionately. And fifth, authentic believers worship steadily. Verse 12, Paul says, rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer. All these are acts of worship and calls of urgent obedience. And it doesn't mean that we don't fail. Or don't, we don't have days where we struggle through these things. I, I have days where these things are struggles. I have weeks where I become so consumed with other things that I need to be reminded that my worship needs to be realigned. And God has grace for us when we fail at these things. But as we look at the progression of our weeks and our months and our years, we should see a consistent and a steady pattern of the Holy Spirit actively working these things into our hearts, into our minds, our desires, and our actions. There's an unbreakable connection between these three calls. They're not separated. They, they go together. Be patient in tribulation. It's okay for us to say that these past few months have been hard, haven't they? Whether it's loneliness or lost loved ones or disagreements, disunity, it's, uh, it's good for us to recognize that these are trials right now and that they have produced levels of suffering. It's also good that we're reminded that trials and hardships are not outside of the call of Christ but are a guarantee for believers. You're not going to hear that one in very many altar calls. 
First Peter 4.12 says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. It's within our trials and tribulations that we are called back to the cross of Christ, back to his sacrifice. We're called to the suffering that our Savior faced and remind how he endured. And it's in the hope of sharing Christ's sufferings that we rejoice. Rejoicing in the hope of the cross is not outside of suffering, but rather right in the midst of it. Anyone can be happy or even appear joyful when everything is going well. But only Christians have a hope in the midst of tribulation and suffering. Only believers are wondered about for being able to rejoice in hope after losing a loved one or being given a poor medical diagnosis or even being persecuted for their faith. It doesn't mean that we don't have sorrow or even feelings of anger for a period. It does mean that we don't stay within those though. The spiritual worship that Paul talks about earlier in Romans 12 is taking place in us when we find ourselves patient in the midst of tribulation and rejoicing in the hope of Christ. And what sustains those two things is prayer. Paul says, be constant in prayer. When our joyful hope is most fleeting is usually when our prayer life is least present. Because it's then that our focus begins to shift that we begin to trust in other lesser hopes. And man, does that happen quickly. I know that it does for me. So is prayer a regular part of your day? Are you kept from it because you have made it out to be uh, some complicated ritual? I think that we fall into believing that prayer only happens in the corner of our room first thing in the morning or at church on Sundays and it has to look and sound a certain way. But that's... That's pretty unrealistic, isn't it? I mean, this says be in constant prayer. So as Paul's saying, quit your job. Don't ever leave your house. Go live at the church. You can't do that, by the way. I mean, I don't know about you guys, but I'm not like dropping down to my knees in the cereal aisle at Aldi each week. And yet Paul says be constant in prayer. So then are you finding ways to talk to God and thank him in the mundane parts of your day? A couple weeks ago, my wife, uh, she told me that she had been wanting to uh, go see a sunflower field. It's the really simple things with my wife. That's why I married her. And uh, she looked up a few and they're actually, I don't know if you've ever researched them, but they're, they're kind of expensive to go see. And so a few days had gone by and uh, she had been talking about it and she told me when, when I got home from work later that day, she said, as I was coming back from a friend's house, uh, I came around this corner and there was this massive sunflower field and I just got to see it and take it in and it was beautiful and amazing. And she said she, she prayed and she thanked God for it. Do you worship God? Do you thank him uh, for the sunflower fields in your life? For these daily blessings that he gives to you? Because when we constantly thank God for those seemingly small blessings, it realigns our hearts to rejoicing in hope. Can we commit to helping one another in these things as a family? Can we commit to worshiping steadily with one another? 
and encouraging one another to return to the cross of Christ in these times, to revel in hope in it alone, to stop trusting in the hope of governments and positive thinking to get us by. Paul's not talking about a culture defined by the hope of their governments, but the hope of their savior. He's not talking about a people of positive thinking. He's talking about a people of redeemed living. That's what we need. That's what this world needs. That's what Ashland needs. They need to see a people of an otherworldly love. And guess what, believer? You, you know this love. You, you have it in you. Use it. Let it be genuine. Worship steadily with it. So authentic believers love genuinely. They cling to the truth of scripture. They esteem one another. They serve passionately. They worship steadily. And the sixth and final thing that marks authentic believers is authentic believers contribute generously. Verse 13 says, contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Let this be an encouragement to all of you. This is, um, this is one of the most generous and hospitable body of believers that I've ever been a part of. You really are a, a generous and hospitable people. I've experienced it and, and I'm thankful for it. And I encourage you to keep going in it. But it's also good for us to, uh, to examine uh, the motivations of our hearts. Don't be caught off guard. We can, we can quickly become greedy givers. And what I mean is being hospitable out of a fear of what others, others may think of you or with a motive of just wanting to impress them with your stuff or from any place outside of genuine care and love for that person is not hospitality. Real hospitality is not self-motivated, it's self-sacrificing. Hospitality can be defined as this, the generous reception of guests, visitors, and strangers. And the greatest example of this is seen in the cross of Christ where we who were once far off, not just strangers, but enemies, have been welcomed in and brought near to God through the righteousness of Christ. And so we look to Christ for our example of hum hospitality. In the same way uh, hospitality can become a selfish motivation, so can our giving. So giving something only in hopes of what you're going to get in return, that's, that's not generosity. We call that a business transaction. In 2 Corinthians 9, Paul tells the church in Corinth not to give from a heart that is expecting to get something in return, but rather he says, each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion. For God loves a cheerful giver. And why do we give cheerfully? Because authentic believers understand the grace that has been lavished upon us in Christ. We know the undeserved mercy that has welcomed us into the family of God and we lovingly want to extend that same welcoming grace and mercy to others. Is it decided in your heart that because of your love for the gospel that you will give cheerfully and generously? that you'll be welcoming and hospitable because of what Christ has done for you? Do you seek out opportunities for this or are you content with sitting idly by and being a consumer? Because authentic believers are not content with being consumers. 
Authentic believers contribute generously. Authentic believers love genuinely. They're marked by their hospitality and their service to one another. Authentic believers are patient and they count one another as more important than themselves. They do this because they are overwhelmingly grateful for how Christ has done all those things for them. So as you process these things this morning, think about the motives of your hearts. Be in prayer about why you do the things you do. Because I pray that these things would not only be marks of our actions, but because of the gospel, authentic desires of our hearts. So preach the gospel that saves again to yourself this morning, church. Go find a brother or a sister in Christ. Remind them this morning of Christ's love for them and sacrifice he made for the both of you at the cross. We need to be reminded, amen? And remember again together God's words through the Apostle Paul. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. This is our call. This is the work and the hope of Christ in us. And these are the marks of authentic and faith-filled believers. Let's pray.